0: Howdy, everybody! My name is Mick Sullivan, and this is The Past and the Curious. This is episode 63. This is the last episode of 2021. Whoa! I hope you have a good new year. It's almost here. I'm looking forward to it. I have some really exciting things to share with you, but that's going to have to wait for another day. Today, we're going to talk about toys. It's become a tradition of sorts. I think for the last three years, we've done an end-of-the-year episode that focused on toys and how uh, they kind of entered our lives. You know, most of them have interesting scenarios, and in fact, most of them, most of the ones we highlight, were kind of accidents. And that's the case with what you're going to hear today. Um, One of these stories my Patreon subscribers may recognize an earlier version of. I think I gave it to them last year. Um, But I liked it, and so I developed it a little bit further. And uh, that's the second one that's about Play-Doh. But first, we're going to hear about Silly Putty, which really starts with, Rubber.
1: Rubber. 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 Rubber.
0: Rubber, rubber. rubber, rubber. Baby bumper. rubber. rubber is a fun rubber. word to say. Rubber. It sounds kind of funny, right? Rubber. There have actually been scientists who have tried to determine which words are funny and why we think so. In the English language, words like rubber, rubber. pickle, and turnip are scientifically proven to simply be funnier words to say than words like plane or tractor or dove. Just why they are funnier is hard to say. You just know when you know, right? But scientists have set metrics and assigned scores and studied many things to figure out why they might sound funny coming out of our mouths and tickling our ears. When it comes to rubber, perhaps? We are just conditioned for fun, because rubber is the reason behind a few of the greatest and most fun toys in the world. Use of natural rubber goes back millions of years. In many parts of the world, like the rainforests of South America and in the areas of the South Pacific, rubber trees produce a creamy, elasticy, and durable substance called latex. Today, it is used for many things, but among its first uses was a game. Indigenous people in Mesoamerica, which is today's Central American regions and part of Mexico, they mixed latex from the rubber tree with juices from other plants to cause a chemical reaction, and the hardening that occurred because of their mixture was similar to an observation a man named Charles Goodyear stumbled on centuries later. Among other things, the Mesoamericans used this development to make perhaps the greatest toy of all time, the rubber ball. Native Americans would harvest the liquidy goo from the trees in a process similar to the way that maple syrup is extracted from maple trees. Though nowhere near as good on waffles, rubber trees oozed something much more practical. In the 1600s, European colonists wrote letters detailing how some of the Native Americans would rub the syrupy substance onto cloaks, and when it dried, it would leave the fabric waterproof, making great raincoats. Shoes and bottles were also made from the substance, and in the 1700s, a hardened rubber sample made its way to a curious European scientist named Joseph Priestley. He noticed that it was great for taking pencil marks off of a page, and now you have the eraser on the end of your pencil. When the first bicycle, often known as the Velocipede, was invented, the wood frame coupled with hard wooden wheels and no shocks meant the direct effect of every single bump was delivered straight to the rider's rump. Folks don't call it the bone shaker for nothing. What that thing needed was rubber tires. And thank heavens a man named Charles Goodyear became obsessed with rubber. And I mean really obsessed. For a while he wore a rubber suit that covered most of his body until it basically melted back into goo. This dude practically bankrupted his family trying to take the natural sticky rubber substance and make it into something stable and able to harden for the many uses that he dreamed up, like life preservers and shoes and rubber bodysuits. His first shoes were pretty great on a mild day, but once it got hot, they'd melt to his feet and get really stinky, like stinkier than normal shoes. Conversely, when it got really cold, the material would get brittle, a swift kick to just about anything, and they were likely to shatter into pieces right off of your foot. Trying to find a solution to the melting and breaking and deterioration, he almost suffocated himself in his kitchen while experimenting. Luckily, he recovered, and then also luckily, he accidentally dropped some rubber and sulfur onto his hot stove, and he was awestruck with the result. So much time and money he'd spent looking for a solution, and this simple, mindless mistake left him with what he was looking for all along. The mixture, when heated, did everything he dreamed of rubber doing, and soon enough, rubber would be softening bicycle rides, bouncing in ball form, sealing bottles, filling rolls and parts for machines, and comforting feet in the soles of shoes, and oh, so much more. Unfortunately for Mr. Goodyear, the process was so easy that everyone started doing it and he couldn't protect his discovery with a patent. The process, called vulcanization, changed the world and Goodyear got almost no money for the discovery. If it's of any consolation to him, in the 1900s, two brothers from Ohio named a tire company in his honor By World War II, rubber was needed for nearly everything, boots and tires and toys and tools, and small but essential parts on nearly every machine being made. But when Japanese forces invaded many of the Asian lands which held most of the rubber tree plantations, the commodity was nearly impossible to get. The supply of raw materials was cut off. So in America, two things happened. One, citizens recycled as much rubber as they could, and two, Scientists tried to find a synthetic way to create rubber, without the naturally occurring sticky syrup-like substance. Oh, if only you could make tires out of maple syrup. Great mines were dedicated to creating man-made rubber so that they wouldn't need the latex from the rubber trees. One of those mines was a Scottish scientist who was working for General Electric. GE, as they are known, had a government contract to develop a synthetic rubber, and James Wright was among many in their New Haven, Connecticut lab, hot on the trail. One fateful day, James thought he had found the solution. He mixed a bit of boric acid with a bit of silicone, and initially found himself pleased with the results. It was soft, not sticky, and certainly very rubbery. Before long, though, a little voice seemed to enter his mind.
2: This isn't the rubber you're looking for.
0: The new substance was unlike anything else he had ever seen or felt. James wadded it into a ball and threw it on the ground. It bounced almost as well as a super-duper double bouncy ball. And everyone knows a super-duper double bouncy ball is the bounciest ball in the world. So he stretched it, and he was delighted with those results, too. Unlike the other rubbers he knew, it could be stretched, easily reintegrated with itself, and then stretched again. It never wore out. He could stretch the same batch a million times, and it never changed. Likewise, he could freeze it or heat it up. Nothing affected it. But if he left it sitting somewhere on an incline or over a hole, it would actually flow like super slow liquid. And if he hit it with a hammer, it shattered into pieces. What? Around the GE shop in New Haven, they had contests to figure out a use for this putty. There must be some way to make it practical, they figured. They were all super smart people, so surely they could figure something out, they thought. Were they right? They were worse than right. They were wrong. Try as they might, those super smart scientists just couldn't come up with an answer. So they looked beyond the lab walls. Anytime someone visited, a hunk of the gunk would be pulled out, slapped in the visitor's hand, and the brainstorming would start all over again. And they never got a good answer. Then came a party in 1948. It was just your normal, run-of-the-mill dinner party. Probably pretty boring, really. Ultimately, it would prove to be fateful to the world of fun, though. Which is kind of ironic about a boring dinner party. People were probably talking about the presidential election that would see Harry S. Truman elected. Or if it was the type of party where politics weren't discussed, Perhaps the magnificently large Mount Palomar telescope was a hot topic. I mean, all the partygoers were scientifically interested people. There were employees from nearby Yale University, some folks from the GE lab, and as luck would have it, a woman named Ruth Fallgotter. We're not sure who it was that brought a hunk of gunk from the GE lab. It might have been James Wright, or it could have been someone else. Whoever it was, they probably realized that dinner parties can get kind of boring. And when the conversation waned, or he just got sick of hearing people drone on, this employee pulled the putty from his pocket and passed it around to the puzzled partygoers. We're perplexed, he'd say. What is it? He'd ask. Any ideas? You can bounce it, stretch it, even pull words off of a newspaper. It's got to be good for something. And when the putty was placed in the palm of Ruth Fallgotter, answer was perfectly plain to see.
1: Oh, it's a toy. A toy? What? Yeah, man. It's a toy. What's a toy? What's a- this. This putty. This thing you've been trying to figure out a use for. This thing in my hand. This
0: is for kids to play with. Ruth, I think you're onto something. How did you figure it out? I own a toy store. I know what kids like. Toys are my game, baby. And this is a toy. Oh yeah, our thinking about this case had grown very uptight. Of course, a toy. That winter, when Ruth printed her annual toy catalog, a new exclusive toy, Silly Putty, was smack dab on the pages, ready to bounce its way into the lives of children for the first time. And in the years that followed, the gunk was promoted by Ruth's pal, Peter Hogsden, He hired some students to stick the squishy stuff into egg-shaped containers and took it to the 1950 Toy Fair in New York City. And before long, Silly Putty was in homes all over the world.
1: Rubber. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Calling all kids in the car. Brittany and Meredith here from the
2: Chart Topping Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Are you dreading another silent car ride with the fam? We've got the cure three rounds of fresh trivia every single week, movies, music, even science and Disney. We've got something for every trivia buff in the car. No more crickets chirping on those long journeys. The family road trip trivia podcast is your secret weapon for connecting and laughing with kids of all ages. Teens, toddlers, adults, it doesn't matter. Spark their curiosity and challenge their brains with every episode. New episodes drop weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast and turn those car rides into epic adventures.
0: This month's You Have 30 Seconds comes from Juliet, and she's going to tell us about her very favorite primatologist.
2: Hi, my name is Julia, I live in St. Louis. Today I'll be talking about Jane Goodall. She's the world's leading expert on chimpanzees. She was born in England in 1934. Her love of animals was inspired by the book Dr. Dolittle. When Jane was 26, she went to Africa and worked with Dr. Lewis Leakey. Jane was also the first person to discover that chimps make tools to hunt for food. She developed the Jane Goodall Institute in 1977 and is still alive and working to protect chimps and our environment. Her love of animals inspires me.
0: Thanks, Juliet. Jane Goodall is absolutely an inspiring, and interesting, fascinating person, and uh, you got, did a great job getting everything in in thirty seconds. Hey, if you out there—not Juliet, because she already did it—did a great job. If anyone else would like to send in, there you have thirty seconds. Well, the instructions are on the website, but basically, you have thirty seconds to tell us about someone awesome or interesting. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time, time, time. That's right. It's that time for quizzes that we know collectively as quiz time. Your first question, and all of these have to do with toys, is this. How many feet of wire do you think it takes to make one slinky? also created by accident, and also created around World War II. We have mentioned the slinky before, probably in quiz time, actually. Anyway, Richard James was looking for a way to stabilize navigational equipment on ships when he stumbled on the classic toy. And today, it takes 80 feet of wire to make a single slinky. Question number two. In 1920, a new German invention leapt into the world the inventors Max Poling and Ernst Gottschall called it a spring-end hopping stilt. What do we call it today? Named after the first two letters of both men's last names, Poling and Gottschall, we know it today as the Pogo Stick. There was actually another version invented in Kansas back in 1891, and it had a similar unsnappy marketing description. Back then it was called a spring stilt for leaping great distances and heights. Pretty cool. Question number three, the third and final question. A very common art supply was first sold door to door in 1903. When you heard the knock on the door, you could pay one nickel and get an eight pack. An eight pack of what? When Crayola Crayons debuted, they didn't go over well with serious artists, so it was decided to sell the crayons to parents for their children to use. The first successful push to get them into homes was a door-to-door effort. If you get right down to it, we can thank the store known as Kroger for Play-Doh. Kroger is an American grocery company founded in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is now common in many states. There's one, a short walk from my house where I get groceries pretty much all the time. Actually, around the time I started thinking about this story, I happened to see someone buying Play-Doh there. So it all kind of came full circle. And I was going to tell them about the shared history between the toy and the grocery store, but I figured I'd seem like a weirdo. Just uh, buying Play-Doh, don't need a history lesson. Thank you so I'm gonna tell you instead. Throughout the first half of the 1900s, most homes were heated with coal. Typically, a coal man would deliver an order of coal by scooping it into a special window-sized door on the side of a house. If you look around the foundations of many older homes, you can see the iron covers of these coal chutes today. In fact, my house still has the remnants of one on the outside, Anyway, once fed through this opening, the coal would slide down a chute into the basement where it would wait in a coal bin to be used. And to keep the place warm, someone in the home would regularly scoop a bit of coal into the furnace to keep it hot and burning. There's a big problem with burning coal in your house, though. Coal is dirty, and the coal smoke that goes wafting through a home leaves a pretty heavy residue on everything. In nearly every house you entered at the time, dark soot and grime was left on the walls and every other surface. In the dead of winter, it was the price you had to pay to keep a home warm and cozy. Of course, you could clean your floors and countertops and doors and windows with water or liquid soap, but that didn't work on everything. A lot of people in this day and age loved wallpaper. Where you most likely have paint to color and decorate your walls, many folks back then had wallpaper to adorn their living rooms, bedrooms, and kitchens. But while it might have been beautiful, the wallpaper of the day wasn't very durable. You couldn't get wallpaper wet. A scrub down with soap and water might leave it peeling off of the walls in an unsightly mess. Of course, once it was covered in coal soot, It was already an unsightly mess. So what was a wallpaper-loving, coal-burning household to do? The Kroger Grocery Company already had a business relationship with another Cincinnati company called Kutal Products, and Kutal made many of the soaps and other cleaning products on grocery store shelves. Kroger approached them with a very specific request. They were looking for a product to sell that would allow people to clean coal residue from all of this beloved but not so durable wallpaper. It was a big problem of the day. Working for Kutal was a man named Noah McVicker, and he said, uh, yeah, sure, sure, yeah, I can do that. Even though he wasn't really sure what he was gonna do. Sometimes the best course of action is to say yes and then figure it out later. Noah had to act quickly because his company was not faring well and needed money before it went out of business. This is probably why he said yes so quickly, knowing that he'd have to sort the rest out later. Later came pretty soon though, because before Noah even had a product ready, Kroger ordered something like 15,000 cases. So he really had to get to work fast. He didn't panic. And soon he had a brand new wallpaper cleaning solution. It was a white doughy material with a very light cleaning detergent mixed in. The dough was intended to be wadded up into a ball which people would dab against their dirty walls. Like magic, the soft clay-like dough would then hold the coal residue, pulling it from the wall, and leave the wallpaper beautiful, undamaged, and soot-free. McVicker's wallpaper cleaning clay worked like a charm and sold very well, at least until people didn't need it anymore. After World War II, new materials came to market, including vinyl wallpaper, which you could wash with soap and water, Around the same time, homes started being converted to cleaner and more efficient sources of heat, like oil and gas and electricity. This was good news for many of the people struggling to both keep their homes warm and free of coal soot, but it wasn't great news for the company that wrote McVicker's Paycheck. With each coal-burning stove removed and replaced in a home, their top-selling product became more and more obsolete. The Kutal company refocused mostly on soap products, and really kind of gave up on the white dough cleaner. After all of this happened, the company found themselves yet again, not doing very well. But opportunity comes when people least expect it. Some don't recognize it, but McVickers did. A new door opened when Noah's cousin and coworker, Joe McVickers got a call from his sister-in-law. Her name was Kay Zufall, and she ran a nursery school in New Jersey. The little kids at her school loved arts and crafts, but sometimes materials could get expensive. And she had another problem. Many of the kids liked to work with clay, but most clay was too dense and hard for little fingers to mold easily. Looking for a softer solution, she read a tip in a magazine about how wallpaper cleaner, which few people wanted anymore, was a great substitute for clay. So she bought some and loved the results. It was a perfect thing for kids to play with. So she called up her brother-in-law. She knew the McVickers had sold a similar material. She probably also realized that with new technologies, the sales of wallpaper cleaner were drying up faster than, well, wallpaper cleaner left out with no lid. Kay's advice was simple. Forget about selling it as a cleaning product and start selling it as a toy for kids. She even had the perfect name, Play-Doh. Joe realized the wisdom that Kay was throwing his way. With a bit of tinkering, he changed the formula. In place of the cleaning detergent, he put a safe new almond-scented chemical. Play-Doh debuted in its new kid-focused form in 1956 at a department store in Washington, DC. And before long, it was a smash hit. The local Cincinnati public school system was one of the first customers. They ordered thousands of one and a half pound tubs. For the first year of its existence, Play-Doh came in any color you wanted, as long as that color was plain old white. Soon they realized that kids might prefer a little variety though, and in 1957, it was offered in blue, yellow, and red. Before long, it became the staple that we all know and love today. A big reason for people learning about Play-Doh had to do with another new technology the television play-doh was regularly featured on one of the first kids television shows captain kangaroo since then play-doh has been one of the most popular ways for kids to have good clean fun and if you ever need to rid your walls of coal residue well you should be prepared for that too thank you all for listening and thank you for a great 2021 looking forward to a wonderful 2022 and i hope you'll be along for the ride i have some exciting stuff in store um actually some of the most exciting stuff i have ever had um and i can't wait to tell you about it in the meantime i have some patreon people to thank and otherwise uh you all really make this keep going i really really appreciate it and i am so grateful for all of the support Uh, noah phillips and lafayette indiana thank you so much i'm so glad that you are uh listening and and moved by the show uh it means the world to me and i am grateful for your generosity and the same goes for phoebe and colleen um phoebe thank you so much and i am also so thrilled that you are out there in the world listening thank you thank you there's a birthday message that I need to send to Clancy in Georgia, Clancy Prayer. How are you? Happy birthday to you. And also hello to Benin, your sibling out there. Um, thank you so much, I'm glad you all are both out there. Logan and Mason Baker, hello and thank you, Logan and Mason and Will and Sophie, thank you as well. I'm so glad that you are out there. Arthur Cohen in Los Angeles, how new to you, sir. Glad that you're out there. Skyla Weiss in Ithaca, New York and Alexandra Thaler. Thank you all so much. As always, if there's someone else that I need to thank, um, then, you know, uh, send me who that is. Oh, and there's one more. How could I forget? My Thely? Great to hear from you again twice in two episodes, right? Yes. Hello and thank you. Uh, And so, I think that's everybody. If I missed anybody, please let me know. Um, It was the end of the year, so there's a lot of stuff going on. So, my apologies. But I think everybody's in there. Um, So, we have a song, and that song is for Cleo in Australia. Cleo, hope you enjoy your song. Everyone else, Happy New Year. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious. Thank you so much, and can't wait to put some more podcast history fun in your ears in 2022. Cleo Cleo Got no card to mail you In Australia But I just want to say Happy birthday Cause you're so far away in Byron Bay Cleo wanna say happy birthday you're so far away in byron bay thanks cleo and thanks to everyone else out there my name is mick sullivan this has been the past and the curious
2: Robert.